Hello there, and welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertzen for the hour. It's BTS 24-7. Will they be the same now that Jin has joined the army? Stay tuned and find... I'm just kidding. It's totally a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about BTS other than somebody got drafted and uh, millions of people are crying. Uh, yeah, mandatory uh, military service in South Korea and uh, BTS, to their credit, said they will not seek exemption. And I guess because they're all different ages, um, they all will join. I think it's something like 2028. Um, they won't be able to tour or release music again until 2028, until they've all gone through their service so uh you can i always I, use avatars that seems to be a thing as well i've learned <laughs> i know too much about k-pop now i yeah i mean i i don't know a lot about bt i i know a couple of their bigger songs but uh they have a lot oh, of no more than me <laughs> they, they they seem like good clean cut fellas so uh good luck the bulletproof boy scouts and uh i would uh i would also well Maybe I, I won't know what happened to Elvis after he did his military service, but uh, Blue Hawaii may be in BTS's future. Uh, <laughs> and that's our show for today. That's actually. our show for today. <laughs> <laughs> Open Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Guelph MPP and Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. And I have no idea why he's here, because it was a pretty lazy and consequence-free session at Queen's Park this fall. <laughs> Nothing happened. Cakewalk. Um, there's a cakewalk. <laughs> That'll be at the bottom of the hour. Before that, we're going to get to a few news items from the last week, including the QAnon-influenced coup in Germany. We will talk about how and why Germany might be Q-raisier than the United States. If hope you see what I did there. It looks better in writing than when I say it out loud. But, <laughs> uh, but first, uh, we had a by-election earlier this week. You may be forgiven if you missed it. Certainly a lot of people in Mississauga Lakeshore missed it because it was 27% voter turnout. About 24,000 voters out of the 89,900 9, 89, eligible voters in that riding. Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint a smile on it because I think it's pretty... I mean, 27% is not a great number when you look at it. But on the other hand, this is like the third election in Mississauga this year. So, you know, maybe credit goes to the 27% who um, who made it a priority to vote in this by-election, um, which was won by Charles Sousa, who was a liberal candidate, former Ontario liberal cabinet minister. He got 51.2%. Um, he beat out by about 12 points the conservative candidate, Ron Chinzer, who I believe is a Peel Region Police Officer. Uh, a lot of people were looking at this for signs and portents. You know, uh, Pierre Polybert's first by-election as conservative leader. Uh, but the real story, I think, and Scotty uh, brought this to my... Well, I, I was kind of aware, but I, I wasn't kind of aware of the undercurrent of this. But, you know, there were 38 other candidates on this ballot and at least three of them were represented by the same agent so maybe scotty you can go into a bit of detail on that since uh, this is your kind of home turf yeah a bit of a pattern there and I, I grew up in this writing when it was known as mississauga south and i still have uh, 
uh, some people there, let's say, and, they, and <laughs> I was talking to one of them and said, did you hear about what's going on? I'm like, no. The, not, so not only were there, there were 35 uh, independents running, some of them knowns like John the Engineer Trammell, of course, which is mm-hmm. to be expected, and a couple of other people live in the riding, but the rest were uh, put up to it, let's say, by the Rhinoceros Party, and the uh, leader of the Rhinos ran as well. And the point they were trying to make, and they did it before... Uh, this is record-breaking stuff. I think they fielded 20 candidates somewhere, possibly in Quebec. But this has beaten their, as they're calling it, the longest ballot committee. Um, and something that they put together in protest um, because of the fact that the 2015 election was supposed to be the last first past the post. And it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So this was their way of... Uh, making a statement and all of the independents got at least one vote i last i saw john Tremell was in at 14 so i think this stole some of his fire this time if we can call it his fire i disagree because he finished 19th out of 40 so that's oh okay i mean he was a solid his best result (laughs) (laughs) he was solid middle of the pack so because like people be like i know that guy the engineer uh Sure, whatever, buddy. But um, yeah, they had to design a custom ballot. I don't know if they had to change the machines. I didn't actually. I was trying to find out about that yet. But they had. They came up. Of course, somebody took a picture of it, even though you're not supposed to. Mm. It may have been one of the independents, and posted it. I'm like, wow, that's confusing. And that is what my friend was saying. He said, you know, if somebody was a, you know, maybe not completely, completely on the balls to who they wanted to vote for, you really had to like rifle through this ballot to find out who you want to vote for. And I know the the rhinos in the past would pull this trick where they would find somebody with the same name. So if they had found somebody named Sousa that ran, then there probably would have been a problem. But he is he, Sousa is a known uh, in the riding, and that's mm. name recognition uh, is is still important in the riding like Massaga Lakeshore. But also uh, community recognition, It's there are some parallels to Guelph in terms of uh, who gets the gig. Now, this riding forever, including back when it was Mississauga South, does this alternating between liberal and conservative, but it's, it has to be a blue liberal or a reddish Tory that mm-hmm. will win. Uh, there's exceptions to that. And I mean at both levels, both federal uh, and and provincially. But uh, Paul Zabo, who was a liberal that won when the uh, conservative uh what was being split with reform was very much a social conservative mm-hmm. and wouldn't have been out of place in, in a poly of um, conservative group. Uh, and that, that's going back a bit, but uh, I think people forget that uh, Sousa was on uh, the reelect or elect John Tory committee. It was a conservative. So there's this, the candidates run there are right on the line, but it is interesting that Polyev couldn't make it. Whereas mm-hmm. every other leader, including well, not only Trudeau, but uh, Jagmeet Singh and the new newly minted uh, Green co-leaders were able mm-hmm. to make it, mm-hmm. even though it's just a by-election. But Paul Evans was like, nah, I don't know, maybe it's not that important. These writings are totally important, especially when it's one of those that flips back and forth between the two, uh, the big two, let's call them. Yeah, you don't want to make too much of it a by-election, but I mean, on the other hand, in 2021, um, Sven Spiegelman uh, won with a little, just just close to 45% as compared to 38.7% in the uh, conservative candidate. 
So, I mean, it was very, very close. Um, and plus, it, it like there, there was a conservative who sat in the seat until 2015 before um, Spangman uh, took over in 2015 with the, the Trudeau wave. Uh, these are the seats that Polivier has to prove he can win. Um, so I, I mean, on the other, so on, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I can understand why you didn't like go into that riding, no holds barred and, you know, um, you know, put a lot of chips on the table, uh, to win that. And there's also like logistical things like he's in the middle of revamping, you know, conservative HQ and putting his people in charge which is something that happens with every new leader. But on, on the other hand too, um, Polivier draws a crowd. Um, you know, he did these rallies when he was running for leadership that drew a lot of people in, uh, not necessarily just people in the riding, but, you know, there was a, a palpable excitement and, you know, we may not agree with his politics, but there are a lot of people who do agree with his politics. So why couldn't he bring some of that shin, uh, into, uh, Mississauga Lakeshore? I don't know. It could have been him just like saying, yeah, this is a nothing burger. Why do I care? Um, so, I mean, it could have looked bad if he'd went in there and put on a full court press and his guy still loses and uh nobody <laughs> nobody likes having the smell of loser on them but on the other hand yeah it feels like he didn't even try and he really needs to try with these like mississauga oakville burlington milton oshawa uh these are the places he has to win if he wants to even form my, a minority government and uh if if you know again Less than two weeks before Christmas, by-election. Again, there's a whole bunch of reasons why he shouldn't, but there was also a whole bunch of reasons why he should have. Yeah, and like I said off the top, this is the kind of writing where you need to show up. I mean, think about it. The Greens traveled all the way across the country mm. for writing that they had absolutely, and I mean absolutely no chance of winning. Mm -hmm. um, but also telling to come out of this was the drop in NDP support. And there was a comment and I'm going to paraphrase a bit from Jagmeet Singh saying, well, it's not really that important, which is along the lines of what Polyev was saying, right? It's like, well, it's not really that important, even though he did go on a canvas. I, I know he went on at least one because I saw the notification on Twitter, but this writing has changed quite a bit in that. I mean, I grew up in the, in, in the industrial part of it and the people that lived in our neighborhood known as Lakeview, which is on the, on the east side of this riding, all worked in Etobicoke South and like Ford territory and the factories that were there. At one point, it was the largest uh, industrial collection of, of industries in Canada after the war. But of course, after that 30-year decline from the war, it's all gone. I, I haven't been down there in a long time, but I think it's all probably condos now. <laughs> so that is that is. Reflected, I think, directly in the in the drop in this vote. And I know that it's just a by-election, but I mean, I I saw one of the bar graphs in passing. I'm like that is way down. I mean, it's not just the normal down. Mm. So some of that may have been people going for Souza and the Liberals to keep um, you know conservatives in check. I think there may be a little bit of that, but I mm. I I also think that uh, Singh and company need to take a bit of a step back and say we probably really should be putting more weight in this in terms of what we need to do. Mm. Um, Cause I know, I mean, they, they, there's no way they were going to win either. I mean, even, even in the sweep of 1990 provincially uh, it, that writing didn't go NDP, even though a lot, a few around in the area did. Um, so I think they need to, they need to also have a look at what they're doing along with Polyev. But I don't know if Polyev's, you know, he, he may be oblivious to this. I don't think he is, but 
Well, I mean, if, it, if he's oblivious, it's dereliction because I, I, I just found my note that 338 Canada had this by-election as a toss-up at one point a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean, obviously they were seeing something in the polls that said, you know, this is not a sure thing for the liberals. Um, and, and whether that's like a dissatisfaction uh, with just, you know, the state of the world now and inflation and, and all that, or just, you know, well, here's our chance to try something different or, or, or that, but either, either way, uh, in the end, uh, they chose for the, the usual ingredients. And, and I, I have a feeling it's cause nobody was like kind of really presenting a strong alternative, uh, yeah. Well, if, if they had run a conservative that was a bit more of a known, and like I said, there is weight on that there as there is mm. in a place like Guelph, mm. it may have been a little bit different, but I don't know if Chinzer was well known in the community and they were very much playing up the law and order card because he was mm. a police officer, but mm. he wasn't a police officer in Mississauga repeal. He was a police officer in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So I think it may have been a little bit different if he was a cop in the community. That would have carried a lot more weight. I mean, he did okay, all things considered. Um, but you know, wasn't wasn't going to carry the day. Now, had they switched it up a bit, and maybe it's you know timing and everything that they weren't able to find uh, the person that they needed to win there. But well, yeah, I mean, my elections are always the tea leaves, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> what should we take away from this? And yeah, well, it's worth pointing out too that uh, Spengman resigned in may i believe um to take a job at the un uh I, I, this is probably the you have six months to call a by-election and i have a feeling like th- it was purposeful waiting to like november 7th to call it not necessarily because justin trudeau was uh you know trying to have an election close to christmas and and play this down i wouldn't put it past them but um at the same time you know we had the provincial election we were in the middle of the provincial election when he stepped down and then there's summer and then there's the municipal election so this was like literally the earliest that it could happen um and you know it, it's just it bad timing all around uh you know you you kind of want to if you really want to make something out of a by-election you kind of want to do it when people are paying attention and then so when people are trying to make time between, you know, holidays and getting year end reports done and, and all that other stuff. So also after like a year with two other major elections in it. So it's, it, it was just a bad hand all around. Speaking of bad hands, uh, German authorities uh, moved in after an investigation arrested 25 people last week uh, part of a what's being called a far right terror network, which sounds great. Uh, people and the details of what exactly they were planning are still unclear. The German authorities haven't quite released that yet, as as we're recording here. Um, but a violent attack on the Reichstag uh, has been something that's been mentioned. The kidnapping of the federal health minister for reasons let's say is another thing that's been branded about what's particularly scary about this is the combination of actors involved uh something called the reichsburgers movement uh which is roughly translated citizens of the reich they don't necessarily mean the third reich this is uh going back to before world war ii having said that though there are neo-nazis involved um the descendants of high-ranking nazis who managed to uh escape punishment at nuremberg plus criminal biker gangs Plus, uh, QAnon adherence. Uh, Germany, as it turns out, is the biggest 
uh, biggest receptacle of sort of QAnon um, misinformation outside the United States, which is something I wasn't aware of or something I may have been sort of vaguely aware of. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a combination of 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 people who are kind of loosely united in this idea that uh, the Ger- the present German government is illegitimate. Where have we heard that before? Also, mm-hmm. that uh, there's a worldwide shadowy cabal of people who are controlling the German government. Who where have we heard that before? And they are preparing for day X when. Uh, the, the day that all of their enemies get defeated. And of course, where have we heard that before? Well, yeah, this is a, a wild amalgam of, of theories coming, coming together as we have seen it. It does echo what's going on in the U S and to some degree in Canada, almost directly. Mm-hmm. Now there was a, there was a mini attack, let's call it on the rice tag in 2020, which kind of not fell under the radar, but we didn't know about it. But I, I follow uh Deutsche Welle, the English version of the german news service always have because it's, it's usually pretty solid and they talked about it and i thought well that's interesting <laughs> uh, how it parallels <laughs> and there was there was a there was a picture of a couple of young fellows with a with a q flag mm-hmm. uh and and I, it resurfaced when in in the articles and the the discussions about this this coup or alleged coup or whatever the heck was going on but yeah it's like you you take all of those things um ball them up together this you know sovereign citizens types mm-hmm. who are rice burgers you know they have their own passports and their they their own laws they don't recognize the country <laughs> again it's the it's pretty much the free men on the land with with a royal spin <laughs> in that there's there's leftovers from the uh german royal family i think it's heinrich the 13th was arrested I don't know if you probably saw this very well-dressed person mm-hmm. uh, he kind of looked like bernie madoff <laughs> getting getting <laughs> put into the van I'm like who the hell is that it seems he was going to be the king of uh he he was going to be in charge they they harken back it, it's this to the second reich the, the german empire of 1871 and they want those borders and they want to bring back the Prussian Empire, but and this mess is all uh, coming together. But add into that brew, as we did see here and in the U.S., a bunch of guns. Uh, uh, it sounds like there was some some far more advanced planning going on in Germany, but also they they arrested somebody in Austria and in Italy. So it's it's almost gone pan European. Uh, these plans and you know mass arrests thousands of police involved mm-hmm. uh so it it's almost gone has almost gone next level from what we're seeing in north america but i mean that's not to say that this couldn't happen here and i think that you know most places will be on high alert now if they if they aren't already for a whiff of something like this bring up which isn't just the usual uh convoy types let's say mm-hmm. if it goes if it goes next level as it did in germany and yeah as you said it's it's all kind of being uh unboxed right now it's like what the heck is actually going on yeah it's it's a weird mixture of a lot of you know kind of american-centric conspiracy theories transplanted into germany but with also a lot of german history involved too like one of the things that's driving this the reichsburgers um a lot of it's in east germany and a lot of that has to do with uh, they feel betrayed for uh, for uni- for reunification that, you know, when 
East Germany was uh, reunited with West Germany and became one Germany again. They thought that a lot of the people who, you know, owned land and had status uh, pre uh, pre World War II or I guess during World War II, leading up to you know the the split of Germany and, and Berlin into sectors at at the end of World War II, they thought once Germany was reunited, they'd get that land and status and power back, and that's not what happened. Um, a new Germany arose, and so that that adds to this level of illegitimacy that they that they feel for uh, this new Germany. Um, yeah, this Heinrich Roos uh, guy, Prince Heinrich the Thirteenth, which actually he's Prince Heinrich the One Hundred and Thirteenth, because apparently they go up to one to one hundred, and then instead of one hundred and one, they go back to one again. So he's actually the, the reset. Yeah, yeah they, <laughs> oh, great reset. Yeah, of the. Uh, the German Aristotle. Oh, I didn't mean it like that, but yes. <laughs> but I mean, you know, there's characters all over this. I I I found out from a Vice article about this guy, Nikolai Nerling, who is um you know involved in like this movement. They have like these small gatherings and things, and there's including one that they do every year in Dresden to mark the the day of the famous bombing of Dresden, the terrible bombing of Dresden. And it's become this sort of like far right beacon. It's become this kind of like dark holiday that encourages them to kind of gather around. But, you know, this guy is Nikolai Nerling has come to the surface and he's incorporated a lot of these conspiracy theories, a lot of this QAnon stuff into the movement. Uh, he was also a flat earther for a while, but then he realized that uh, flat earth was BS and then, <laughs> and then uh, dismissed it again. <laughs> and then, and so somebody, somebody asked him like, well, you you know, you believe in flat earth for like a week. Uh, you know, is it possible that all this other crazy stuff you believe is, is incorrect? He's like, Oh no, no, I believe in everything. Uh, I just don't believe in that crazy flat earth stuff. That's, <laughs> that's too out there for me, but yeah, it's it, a lot of it is this, you know, all these like conspiracy theories online that we're familiar with, but you know, throw in this vaguely German disgruntlement about the old ways, Holocaust denial, um, also remember Germany in 2015 was like one of the few European countries that'd be like, that was like, yes, we accept migrants. If you come to Germany, you're a migrant, you, we will take you. And a lot of that, again, you know, uh, a lot of fear of, uh, undocumented people in the United States. Um, so, I mean, that's also kind of what makes us, I think, a uniquely German phenomenon is that it, the, that pump was primed in 2015 when Germany was one of the only places in Europe that would accept migrants, uh, as they arrived and weren't trying to figure out a way to pawn them off on someone else. Yeah. And I saw a little, I think it was in Der Spiegel talking mm -hmm. about who the typical member of these movements is. And it said 50 male and socially and financially disadvantaged. Mm. So that kind of speaks to the, the, as you mentioned, East Germany, where there has there, you know, there was, and has been for a long time, the economic decline never fully recovered. And Heinrich, the, 13th of the 113th part of his thing was <laughs> fighting to try and get his family's property back, which was expropriated mm -hmm. uh, during the war. And and then when it became communist and was never given back. So everybody, everybody has a bone to pick, right? But, mm -hmm. but where, where it gets super political is that there's some evidence to suggest that the, the uh, AFD, the alternative for, for Deutschland party mm -hmm. who are a, a minor party, but still have quite a following in the German uh, in the Bundestag. The um, they have proportional representation there, so it's you obviously get more representatives. Uh, a lot of the talking points that they use in in normal parliament kind of parrot the same similar 
popular talking points that these people use in terms of everything from vaccines to whatever. And they also lean, well, they don't lean, they are a right wing. Uh, I think elements of them are far right. So, of course, it gets into the anti-Semitic territory and Islamophobic territory and add into that all the, you know, the soup of conspiracies that are growing. Um, it, it, it's probably good in a way that this was, it won't be completely shut down because you're still going to have the conspiracy ties. But, you know, where I think they're trying to draw a line is like, where is it? Um where does it jump from just people protesting like our convoy types mm-hmm. to are they actually going to take over the uh, Reichstag? And they were caught off guard. It was a, it was a mini January 6th that they had. They were caught off guard. If I understand it right, there was a protest going on and there was only three police. Mm-hmm. So somebody, they were able to, I mean, maybe they have better resources, better communication in terms of shutting that kind of thing down better than Washington, better than Ottawa, probably. <laughs> but I'm sure that m- was the point where the, the red flags went up and they're like, oh boy, we should probably um, keep an eye on this. And it looks like they were, uh, they were right. But yeah, so I, I, I kind of wonder where this is going to go. Obviously the, um, the coup leaders will be treated differently. And I mean, we saw that here too, out in Coots, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I haven't heard anything is what happened with the people with the, with the, the guns and whatnot, but it's similar. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's speaking to the, this may be a worldwide thing that all democracies or governments in general need to look out for, right? That it's not just, you know, don't underestimate uh, the beefs that people have because they can turn into, uh, something a bit more than just um, crazy talk, let's say. Yeah, and that's, I think that's key. I think the other thing that's key is um, some of the warnings out there about how uh, the QAnon adherents, uh, yeah, they're moving away from sort of the core QAnon ideology, which is understandable because Q has mostly gone silent uh, after Trump left office. But now they've gone from a point of view of trusting the plan to uh, we are the plan. So, uh, yeah, you can't really just say, oh, these are a bunch of crazy people anymore. They are they, they are deluded, but they are also highly invested in making whatever um, prophecy they have coming true. And they've come to the realization that uh, no outside force is going to be able to do that for them. They're going to have to do it for themselves. So uh, something to keep you up at night as we head into 2023. <laughs> uh, <laughs> something else. Something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we're going to we're going to call that there because uh, we're going to get some insights from other stuff that's going to keep you up going on at Queens Park. And we're going to get into some of that with uh, Mike Schreiner coming up after the break. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio.
And that was number 13 on this week's CFRU chart. The band is called Dumb. From Vancouver. The album is Pray For Tomorrow. And the song, as you may have heard, was Civic Duty. Something we all need to be on top of. It's Civic Duty by Dumb from their... What's their, what's their album again? Pray For Tomorrow. Pray For Tomorrow. Civic Duty by Dumb, Pray For Tomorrow. Yeah, okay. There's a lot of mixed messages there. Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> speaking of mixed messages, how about that Queen's Park? Uh, so the... the <laughs> The the legislative session wrapped up last week, which means uh, hopefully we will be free of bills that radically rewrite our local democracies for a couple of months. Uh, In the meantime, Mike Schreiner's uh, back here in Guelph doing Guelph stuff and uh, appearing at different events all over town. You'll see him out and about. Uh, but you're going to hear from him this week on the show as we talk about uh, stuff at Queen's Park from the last couple of months, how he's feeling, some uh, perhaps a little psychoanalysis of Doug Ford and his current predicament, and uh, what we can expect coming up in the new year. Uh, so we're going to dig into all that with Mike Schreiner. We're just going to hit play on that interview starting right now. Okay, Mike Schreiner, thank you so much for joining us once again. Hey, Adam, it's always a pleasure to join you. Uh, uh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, there hasn't yeah. been that much news at Queens Park the last couple of months. It's uh, it's really pretty quiet. Like nobody was creating any kind. Con- I'm just kidding. Of course, there was tremendous controversy. But I want to start with the politics first. And I know you've already uh, politely declined the invitation to run as liberal leader, but I'm curious about how you read that situation in a couple of ways. Number one, how people like Mike Schreiner. Uh, and want to vote for Mike Schreiner, maybe not as Green Party leader, but as liberal leader and how you see that. And number two is, what does it kind of say about opposition leadership at Queen's Park right now that, you know, Merritt Stiles, um, you know, wins by default and the liberals seem to have to shop outside the team to find someone to lead? I mean, is is there really, uh, I guess, no one willing to stand up to Doug Ford? Is Is that something that's happening down there? Well, Adam, you know, I feel like I'm standing up to Doug Ford, and I think people have really noticed that uh, during the provincial election and post-election. And I would say since June 2nd, um, I've had a number of supporters of the NDP suggesting I should run for NDP leader, had a number of liberal supporters suggest that I should run for liberal leader, had a few people say that we should combine the three opposition parties and I should lead that. (laughs) Um, I do want to be clear, nobody from, no conservative supporters have reached out to be the conservative leader at this point. Uh, and so, you know, I would just say that I, I love being the, the MPP for Guelph. I love being the leader of the Ontario Green Party. And I'm really focused right now on just being a strong voice for Guelph and holding the premier accountable on a whole host of issues, you know, from health care to climate action, to opening the Greenbelt for development, to real solutions to addressing the housing affordability crisis. And that's really where my focus is right now. All right, well, let's talk about the premier because you you characterized him as being drunk with power, um, (laughs) which I understand, but I mean, he's also, you know, a, a, a different from someone who's typically drunk with power, he kind of like evades and avoids and like there was an entire week where he didn't come to question period at all. So, I mean, on the one hand, he does seem drunk with power. On the other hand, he doesn't want to sort of uh, be connected to that power. What What's the disconnect here? Well, I think the premier knows that his approval ratings are very low. 
Uh, you know, he has a, the third lowest approval rating of any premier in the country. Uh, I think he knows that his policies are unpopular. I think there's a lot of people who feel, especially the proposals to open the Greenbelt for development in order to, you know, financially benefit a handful of land speculators who also happen to donate to the Conservative Party. And, and so the Premier is imposing that agenda onto the people of Ontario. He knows that it's not popular. And so he's doing everything he can to you know, not be visibly associated with it while at the same time imposing it on the province. And I'll just say, I find inspiration in all the people who are pushing back. So I think of the parents, the students, the education workers who push back to the premier's abuse of the notwithstanding clause to take away the charter rights of the lowest paid education workers. I'm inspired by all the people who are participating in and attending these rallies to oppose opening the green belt for development. I mean, you know, you spend any time walking around Guelph, you're seeing, you know, Doug Ford, keep your green belt promise signs popping up all over Guelph. And you're seeing that in communities across the province. And so I understand, you know, why the premier is kind of in hiding a little bit when you have that kind of opposition. And then on top of that, you have emergency rooms in crisis, many of them uh, closing down and you have pediatric ICUs uh, being overwhelmed. And, and the premier, one almost seems to be ignoring uh, the healthcare crisis. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think the people of Ontario deserve better. I think at this point, we just deserve like competent leadership, which is what's lacking uh, provincially right now. And, and to your point, uh, this is kind of probably nipping at the heels of a lot of conservative MPPs as well. And you've been spending a lot of time in Georgetown, which is notable because it's my hometown, uh, Georgetown being in the middle of Wellington, Halton Hills, which Ted Arnott has, I won't say ruled with an iron fist, but he certainly <laughs> skated to many a re-election in the last 30 years. Um, is, is there like you know, from your point of view and talking to people in, in these writings, you know, is there, I guess, the right kind of pressure to sort of put some of these MPPs, put their feet to the fire? I mean, Arnott's in a unique position because he's speaker, but this has to be going on in other places. People, uh, conservative members hearing from their constituents that like, hey, this is not what I voted for. Yeah, so I think I think a lot of the citizen groups, farmers, environmentalists, community groups are being very strategic in the fact that a lot of the pop-up protests are in conservative writings. They're turning the heat up on conservative members. I mean, I can't remember a politician who explicitly promised something as often as Doug Ford has. Maybe maybe uh, Trudeau, actually, when this 2015 was going <laughs> to yeah. be the last election or first past the post. Mm -hmm. um, so the two of them, those the, like this is a this is an obvious, explicit promise. Uh, the premier has made on multiple occasions. I've documented 19 times that the premier or his minister of housing has explicitly stated they would not open the Greenbelt for development. The fact that they have has angered a number of people. And I can tell you when I've been in some of those conservative writings, I've had people coming up to me saying, hey, thanks for coming out. And by the way, I've historically voted conservative. And I think Doug Ford has forgotten that the word conserve is in the word conservative because he's certainly not conserving the farmland that feeds us, 
the wetlands and nature that clean our drinking water, protect us from flooding, and the places that so many of us, particularly in rural communities, love to spend time with our families when it's absolutely not necessary. I mean, the Premier's own Housing Affordability Task Force, which is handpicked by the Premier, um, clearly stated that access to land is not what is leading to the housing affordability crisis we're facing. And so for the Premier to suggest that opening the Greenbelt is somehow going to solve this crisis is just wrong. Every housing expert will tell you that. Um, but what it will do is it's going to enrich a handful of land speculators who also happen to donate to the Conservative Party who are going to be able to turn millions into billions. And I don't think that passes the smell test, no matter who you voted for in the last election. It's if you heard from the Integrity Commissioner about moving forward on your complaint yet is. Yeah, so I have not heard back other than, you know, it's under consideration. Okay. Uh, and now I've noticed that, um, you know, just a few days ago, the NDP now has put forward uh, an Integrity Commission complaint as well. And I've also noticed that a, um, you know, high profile, one of the highest respected constitutional lawyers in the country has uh, sent a complaint to the OPP asking them to investigate these land deals. And I mean, think about this. So of the 15 parcels of land they're opening for development Eight of them, over half, were purchased after Doug Ford uh, became premier. Mm -hmm. One of them, somebody took out a $100 million loan at 21% interest. Like, who does that for land they can't develop? It makes absolutely no sense. One of these deals uh, just closed a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, sorry. And, and, and I'm thinking that, like, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be an expert mm. to, you know, recognize that this just doesn't pass the smell test. And mm. so I think it would be appropriate for the integrity commissioner to conduct an investigation. I'm hoping that the integrity commissioner will follow up on my request, but, you know, I, I haven't heard one way or the other at this point. It just looks hinky because I mean, theoretically, they could be opening like, like a tiger King, like preserve or something, but it's, that's probably <laughs> not the case. Let me ask you this. If if Doug Ford disappeared tomorrow, I mean, do these problems go away? Like, is, is he the ideological force of all this or is this like behind the scenes party engineering? Well, you'll have to ask a conservative the answer to that <laughs> question. So I can only speculate at this point. But um, I mean, clearly the premier has been, you know, wanting to open the Greenbelt for development ever since he ran for leadership of the conservative party. And, and so, you know, the fact that every time he's tried to do it, and I remember back to 28 and 2019 uh, with Bill 66 and, you know, people power pushed back against it and the premier um, backtracked on, on, on that. And it's interesting because uh, the big rally that happened at Queens Park a few weekends ago, uh, a lot of people had their Bill 66 signs out and had taped over the 66 with Bill 23. So, you know, here we have another piece of legislation to open the Greenbelt for development and people are pushing back against it. And I think today's financial accountability officer report, which shows that um, our stormwater and wastewater infrastructure will likely need a $6.2 billion investment over the next eight years because of the increasing severity and frequency of extreme weather events. And you take that on top of the FAO's report on transportation infrastructure and buildings. And we're looking at a $26.2 billion price tag 
to the people of this province just to get public infrastructure um, in a position that we can withstand these extreme weather events and doing things like weakening conservation authorities, getting rid of the wetlands classification system, opening the greenbelt for development is only going to make those costs even higher and the risk associated to our lives, livelihood and property even greater. So I think it just highlights that, um, you know, no matter where you stand on, uh, on the political spectrum, uh, what the premier is doing is wrong, it's dangerous, it's reckless, and it's completely unnecessary if the goal is to address the housing affordability crisis. And at the same time, though, he, the, the, govern, the provincial government anyway literally won't pay the price for it because, you know, things like stormwater infrastructure, building infrastructure, roads, that's municipal budgets that are being cut. Oh yeah, a lot of a lot of this uh, is going to fall on the municipalities because a lot of the provincial infrastructure is owned by municipalities. Though the province will transportation is the biggest one, and you know you think of you know go lines and four hundred series highways. So the province is facing uh, risk to provincial infrastructure as well. But I think you know from a municipal standpoint, between the property tax increases and or severe service cuts that are going to come about because of Bill 23 and removing development charges and no longer having growth pay for growth. You take that combined with the significant financial risk to municipal infrastructure and anybody who pays property taxes or pays you know, rent and their rent is affected by the property tax their landlord pays. Uh, so essentially, you know, every tenant and homeowner in municipalities here in Guelph and municipalities across the province are facing a significant risk to increase property taxes and or major service cuts or a combination of both. And so I think we should all be deeply concerned about the direction the Ford government is going. And I think that's why you've seen so many municipalities, again, across the political spectrum, like with mayors and councillors across the political spectrum, passing resolutions, you know, saying repeal Bill 23. Right. Is there a bit of a sense of deja vu here that, you know, the conservatives come to power in 2018, um, move fast and break things, you know, get people out in the streets um, and then, you know, have to start, and you know, pull back on some of these things. You know, did they not learn the lesson in 2019, 2018? Well, yeah. So 2018, 2019, Doug Ford is back with a vengeance right now. And the people of Ontario, we're all going to pay the price for it. And, you know, the, the pandemic, you know, I guess led to a bit of rehabilitation for the premier and helped him, I think, with his reelection campaign. Hopefully we're not going to have another pandemic. I think we're all pretty exhausted and tired uh, after the one we're still going through right now. Uh, and so, you know, I, I have a feeling that, what the premier is doing now is is going to stick uh, much more than it did in 2018 and 2019 because it's the second time he's done it, and and it's not clear to me that there's going to be other events that are going to give him an opportunity to to rehabilitate his image after all the damage that's been done. Mm. Um, I do want to talk about health care because it, yes. it does seem to be the, the redheaded stepchild and a lot of the issues going on and probably shouldn't be. Um, would it help right now, you know, given the people you're talking to, if we had mask mandates back? Would that, you know, help curve a lot of what's going on? 
You know, well, I think when it comes to mask mandates, uh, we need clear direction from the public health community. And, and, and we don't have that right now. And so I've said throughout the pandemic that, you know, I follow the science and I follow what the public health experts are advising. And if we had a clear consensus from the public health community that we needed to bring back mask mandates, that's something I would support. Uh, and we don't have that clear consensus right now. So it makes it difficult, you know, as a politician who's not a public health expert to, to, to advocate for something in the absence of right. the public health community, um, you know, charting a clear path forward. I think the fact that the Ford government dismantled the independent science advisory table really complicates matters right now, which is one of the reasons I was opposed to the government doing that, uh, because I feel like, you know, the public and those of us who are elected officials, we really rely on that independent scientific advice that we just simply don't have right now. You know, I think the biggest crisis in, in healthcare is just chronic underinvestment that's been going on uh, for a number of years now, but has really gotten worse in, in the last four years. I mean, the fact that we have emergency rooms closing, we have pediatric ICUs being overwhelmed, uh, we have you know people not being able to access the health services they need, and you have a provincial government that just underspent their own inadequate health budget by $900 million is completely unacceptable. And now the premier is trying to divert attention to that and saying, oh, this is all the federal government's fault and we need more money from the federal government. Well, I say, yes, we do need more money from the federal government. The federal government absolutely needs to step up and provide provinces with additional healthcare funding, but it's pretty hard to make that argument when you have a premier in Ontario who underspends the healthcare budget when we're facing an unprecedented healthcare crisis. You know, we just have the courts that struck down Bill 124, which capped nurses and frontline healthcare workers and other public sector worker wages at 1%, which if you talk to any nurse, that, that's what's driving so many healthcare workers out of the profession. And the premier is like, oh, we're gonna appeal the decision that declared it unconstitutional. Well, that's just another slap in the face of nurses and other frontline healthcare workers who are leaving the profession because they're feeling disrespected, underpaid and overworked and, and rightfully so. And, and so, you know, I would just say to, to the premier, you know, like invest, invest in our public healthcare system, publicly delivered, publicly funded healthcare. And the most important investment you can make is investing in the people who deliver that care. Doctors, nurses, PSWs, technicians, you know, a whole range of um, healthcare providers. Uh, and, I, and I would include mental health supports uh, in that as well, because mental health is health. And so the fact that the government is just so grossly underfunded the system, you know, that's a significant contributor to the crisis that we're facing. But that's been the message to Doug Ford since probably, you know, we, we made it through the second wave in, you know, late 2020, early 2021, you know, nurses were tapped out then, you know, facilities were tapped out then. Um, and then, you know, there was a the press conference, I think it was last week or the week before where it was brought up for that uh, CHEO had brought in, you know, the Red Cross. And he's like, well, that's great news. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I, 
we're, 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 we keep kind of giving him the same set of statistics and expecting him to finally reconcile it. I, I just, I, it feels like we're hitting a kind of a brick wall on that. Well, I, I just don't know if it's possible for the current premier to provide the competent leadership we need in the healthcare sector. Like, because you're right. I mean, people were saying this pre-pandemic. Like, I remember meeting with, you know, healthcare leaders in Guelph and taking the message to the province that the healthcare system was over capacity, chronically underfunded, and needed significant resources. And, you know, the pandemic obviously has just made it worse. And, and it's fallen on deaf ears. I mean, the, the premier just doesn't seem to respond to reality. And, you know, in my response to the situation of Chio bringing in the Red Cross was, if that was your plan, that's a pretty awful plan. Like mm-hmm. I would say, get a better plan. And if it was your plan, why didn't you communicate that plan to parents and healthcare providers so they so they could plan their own lives appropriately? And so, you know, I think this just comes from you know something that continually happens with this government, especially when it comes to healthcare. I think they're gaslighting Ontarians to anyway suggest that somehow they plan to bring in the Red Cross to Mm. deal with the crisis that we're facing. I mean, you know, just it was just a few months ago that the healthcare minister was denying that there was even a crisis. You know, meanwhile, you know, the any average person out there is looking at emergency rooms being closed, looking at the backlog of ambulances on Delhi, for example, that's happening, uh, uh, you know, and across the province. And, you know, like, it doesn't take a healthcare expert to say that, you know, this is a system that's in crisis. And then you have a government that, you know, doesn't even spend the money they budgeted for healthcare, they underspend it by $900 million. Like, it just seems like incompetence to me. And I think the people of Ontario deserve better and our children especially deserve better. Like we are failing, we are failing our children right now to provide them with, with, any semblance of access uh, to to healthcare right now. It's hard to top we're failing the children right now, but it, it you know, we're at the end of 2022. Um, you know, you're kind of on a bit of a break. The legislature's on a bit of a break until after Family Day, which is the end of February. Um, what are you anticipating when you get back to the legislature next, early next year? Um, you know, uh, I remember at the council meeting a couple of weeks ago, uh, the staff said that their sources in the ledge were telling them that there's more housing legislation coming in the new year. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm curious, you know, what are you worried about coming once uh, we're all sort of back to business as unusual? Well, I mean, first of all, it's really important to be back in the riding for a couple of months, um, you know, just today. I mean, I've been spending all morning meeting with constituents and and hearing people's concerns, the challenges they face. Uh, And I think that is really important to guide my work when I come back to Queens Park in February. Uh, But I also want to put the premier on notice that uh, people have made it very clear to me that they are going to continue to push back, uh, ensuring that the government doesn't privatize our healthcare system. They're going to push back uh, against opening the Greenbelt for development. Uh, they're going to push back for, you know, the investments we need in our public services, especially when it comes to healthcare and education. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to continue to meet with constituents, but I'm also going to continue to, you know, voice 
uh, you know, my opposition to the things that I disagree with, with what this government is doing and, and to hold them accountable. And Adam, you know me, I'm always looking for ways to work across party lines. And so, you know, I've already reached out to the new NDP leader to talk about, you know, how we can work together. Um, I have a good relationship with the interim leader of the Liberals to talk about how the three opposition parties can work together. But I've also spent time reaching across the aisle to conservative members as well to talk about, you know, hey, are there some areas where we can work together, especially when it comes to protecting farmland? Because, you know, most of the ridings in the province that, you know, have the best farmland actually are represented by conservatives. Mm. And meanwhile, you have farmers and farm organizations speaking out and telling this government that we can't continue to lose 320 acres of farmland every day. Like it just, we won't be able to sustain our food and farming economy and we won't be able to feed ourselves. And so these are significant and serious issues that cannot wait till February. And I think you're right. Um, and I think city staff are right to anticipate that the government's going to bring forward additional housing legislation. And I would just say to them, you know, why don't you pass Bill 44 and Bill 45, which are two of the housing bills I've put forward, one of them to end exclusionary zoning so we can remove the red tape that prevents people from building fourplexes and four-story walk-up apartments in neighborhoods so we can ramp up housing supply very quickly within our existing built environment, which is the most affordable way to do it for municipalities and for people and families. And also uh, my bill that would allow for mid-rise development along major transportation corridors, again, so we can quickly ramp up supply in ways that are affordable for communities and for people and don't pave over farmland, greenbelt, wetlands, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, I think those are the kinds of housing solutions that are what most housing experts, and again, housing experts across the political spectrum are calling for. And then finally, uh, when it comes to housing, we need the government to actually step up and invest in non-market solutions, uh, particularly co-op and in nonprofit housing. Most of the deeply affordable housing that's available in communities in Guelph and across the province were built in the 1970s and 1980s when both the federal and provincial government were supporting nonprofits and co-ops. And, you know, I'm gonna be going to a holiday dinner at the Fife Road Co-op, um, I believe next week. And, and I've been meeting with co-op housing providers here in Guelph and across the province, and they are ready. They are ready to build more deeply affordable homes for people. They just need a little bit of government support like we had in the 70s and 80s to get it done. All right. The premier is duly put on notice then. Uh, for now, though, Mike Schreiner, just thank you so much for, for giving us a bit of your time in these busy days. And uh, we'll see you in the new year. Sounds good, Adam. Always a pleasure to join you. And, you know, I always appreciate um, the journalism that, that you and others do in our community. It's really important. Thank you. And once again, that was Mike Schreiner, uh, MPP for Guelph and Green Party of Ontario leader. Um, not liberal leader, and uh, I <laughs> think he was pretty clear that he's not going to be liberal leader, or or he's not going to be a coalition leader. Um, so uh, still green leader anyway. Still, still the leader in open sources appearances, though. So keep that oh, record. Oh, probably you're probably yeah. right. I should we should probably count that off. Create a leaderboard, if you will. Get um, the green jacket. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. 
<laughs> out of storage. <laughs> Hopefully no mods. <laughs> I don't know. It's been in storage for a couple of years. Anyway, um, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You could stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. You can find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire. And we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you'd like to listen to this show again, you can download it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. Scotty Hertz on Twitter, Facebook, and Mastodon. If you're joining us on the FM right now, stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground. And if the storm did hit, I'm going to say drive safe. Uh, yes, we don't know if the storm hit. It might have hit, or it might not have hit. It's Schrodinger's storm right now. Frankie McDonald's right. It's slamming us <laughs> into oblivion right now. So get your storm chips ready. <laughs> get your storm you chips haven't. ready. It's too late. <laughs> if you haven't done it, it's too late. Speaking of programming notes, um, we're going to take our usual holiday break, but that means we're you're going to get our political movies episode next week, and then our year end awards show the very next week after that so stay tuned for more great programming here on cfru 93.3 fm cfru.ca guelph campus and community radio we shall return next thursday for that year-end political movie show thursday at 5 p.m here on open sources guelph and we will see you then